Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. But 2 Samuel chapter number 1, as we continue uh, through the life of David, we're going to start the book of 2 Samuel. Now the story of David's life can really be told in in two uh, kind of sections, two chapters, two seasons, the book of 1 Samuel and the book of 2 Samuel. Now we finished 1 Samuel last Sunday, and this morning, as we begin the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to look at the first five chapters. Now, I know that seems like a lot, but it's not a lot. We're going to fly through it. Uh, I do encourage you this week to go back and read these five chapters for yourself, because we're not going to read every verse in these five chapters. That's just just too much information. We're going to kind of hit the highlights of it and focus on some verses. So I encourage you to go back and read that uh, this week. But these first five chapters, they really kind of serve as a review of David's life up to this point. And it really highlights what made David such an incredible leader of Israel. What made David such a great king? Because as you study scripture, you notice that after David, after his death, every king of Israel is compared to David. They're either a godly king like David or they're a a, a wicked king not like David. So David is kind of the, 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 the standard that God has for kings of Israel. And we, we kind of see what makes him who he is uh, in these verses. Now, uh, 1 Samuel, of course, we remember it ends on a, a sad note. Saul has been killed in battle. His sons, most of his sons have been killed with him. Jonathan, David's best friend, the, the man who risked his life and defied his father to save David's life and gave everything for David, but still he was Saul. Jonathan is killed in battle. Their bodies are desecrated. Saul's head is cut off. He's nailed to a wall uh, as a trophy to the Philistines. And so it ends on a, a terrible, terrible note. David, uh, meanwhile, is still in exile. He is still on the run, uh, not aware of what's happened to Saul. So he's still running from his life, not sure what God is doing, exiled by uh, Saul because of his jealousy. Samuel, of course, had anointed David as the true king way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, but Saul, very jealous of David, very uh, angry at God's rejection of him, uh, tried to kill David on multiple occasions and then hunted David down uh, like a dog. And David had done nothing to Samuel, to Saul. David was a faithful servant to Saul. He protected him. He served him. He watched after him. He defended him even while he was on the run. But uh, Saul had turned on David. Uh, and a second Samuel opens, David learns about Saul's death. And Amalekite, uh, which if you remember, the Amalekite should not exist because God had commanded Saul to go down to the Amalekite land and wipe out all the Amalekites, their, their women, their children, uh, kill everybody, kill the animals, leave nothing behind. Of course, Saul disobeyed God, killed most of them, but didn't kill all of them. Uh, and brought the best back to Israel. So, but this Amalekite, he comes to David and uh, tells David some disturbing news. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, 
We're going to start reading in verse number 3. Um, first, verse number 1. Now it came to pass, verse 1, after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David abode two days in Ziklag, it came to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell on the earth and did Obstinance. And David said to him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel I am escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. This is the first time that David hears about Israel's defeat at the hands of the Philistines. First time he hears about Saul's death, about Jonathan's death, and David is, is heartbroken over this. This is not uh, something he wanted or expected, and so not only is Saul dead, but uh, Jonathan, his friend, is dead, and he's just he's heartbroken over this. And he asked this man, uh, how do you know that this, is, this has happened? How do you know that Saul and Jonathan and his sons are dead? And this Amalekite says, well, I was passing through the battlefield, and I heard Saul call out to me. And so I went to where Saul was, and he was wounded, but he was alive. And Saul begged me to kill him because he didn't want the Philistines to get him because he knew if the Philistines took him alive that they would eventually kill him, but they would torture him and mutilate him, and he didn't want that. So Saul asked me to kill him, and I didn't want to do it, David, but, you know, Saul was begging me, and so I killed Saul to save him from the Philistines. Now, we know that this guy is lying. Because 1 Samuel ends and tells us that Saul, for fear of the Philistines capturing him, killed himself. He asked his, his uh, uh, armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer wouldn't do it, so Saul fell on his own sword and killed himself so that he would not have to suffer under the hands of the Philistines. So this man, he was probably just scavenging the battlefield. That would happen after a battle. Uh, scavengers would come in and they would uh, kind of uh, pillage and plunder the corpses and take anything they could, any weapons, any gold. And he came upon Saul and saw an opportunity. So he pillaged Saul's body, took his crown and thought, hey, if I take this crown to David and tell David that I killed Saul for him, then David is going to, to bless me. David will give me a prize. Uh, David, however, did not react the way this guy thought. Look down at verse number 14. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him and he, that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. David is furious that this guy did what David wouldn't do. David said, I, who was the anointed king of Israel, God sent Samuel to anoint me as king. I have the rightful, I have the right to the throne. And I wouldn't kill Saul because he was God's man. He was God's anointed. I was going to let God take care of it. And how dare you do what I wouldn't do myself? So he puts this man to death and, and kills him and tells him, says, hey, this is on you. You chose to take matters in your own hands instead of waiting on God. You chose to stretch out your hand towards God's anointed. And so David takes wrath and vengeance on this guy. And so this really it brings us to our first point that we want to see from this story. Number one, we see what made David 
a man after God's own heart. You know, the Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart. He had a heart for God to serve God, to worship God, to do what God wanted to do. And we see three qualities that made David this type of man, that made David a man after God's own heart. Qualities that we should look for in our own hearts as well. First thing we noticed was David had a posture of submission. David had a posture of submission. He never wanted to become king on his own terms. He had several opportunities. Not just we saw one, but there were up to three opportunities David had when he's running from Saul that he could have killed Saul himself, been totally justified in doing it. I mean, Saul's trying to kill him. It's, it's self-defense. God's anointing me king anyway, and Saul's standing away, and so I'm just doing what God wants me to do and, you know, for myself. But David never wanted to take matters in his own hands. He knew God promised that he would be king one day. And he was trusting God to bring that to be in God's timeline. The, the crown was a privilege that was rightfully his. But David said, you never achieve God's purposes by compromising on God's commands. Countless times throughout his life, David had the opportunity to force his way to the throne. But he refused to force God's will. He trusted that God would do what God needed to do on his own times. He refused to break God's law to achieve God's purpose for his life. And here's the thing. At some point in our life, we are all going to be tempted to pursue something good. Something we believe God wants us to have in our own way. The greatest temptation for a believer is not to pursue sin, but to pursue good in a sinful way. You know, God wants me to be prosperous. God said he, he wants to bless me. He wants to help me to use my finances for his kingdom, and he wants to bless my family financially, but it's not happening the way I want it to, or it's not happening fast enough for me, so I'm going to cheat on my time card. I'm going to steal from my employer. I'm going to cheat on my taxes. I'm going to overwork and neglect my family so that I can make the money I think I need to have. Yeah, God's promised it to me. It's a good thing. I'm not trying to be evil, but I'm doing it in a wicked way. You know where God wants me to have a happy marriage. God wants me to be happy with my spouse, but the one I got, man, she ain't doing it or he ain't doing it. So I'll, I'll leave them, and I'll go find someone who will make me happy. I'm pursuing God's will in my way. Or, you know, I have, a, have to pass a, a test. I have, to, I have to pass this class if I want to get a degree, but I don't have the time or the talent to write a good paper. Good thing AI has gotten good enough where I can use AI to write this paper for me. You're not pursuing something wicked. You're pursuing something good, something you believe God wants you to have but you're not doing it in a godly way. We'll all be tested like this at some point. We're, we're tested to take the crown for ourselves. You know, David, he waited on God. He trusted God to bring forth God's will in God's way and in God's time. But this isn't a, a passive posture. David wasn't just sitting around doing nothing. 
He was active in listening to God. See, he doesn't figure out what God wants and then ask God to bless it. He doesn't say, well, God wants to do this, so I'm going to do what, what this is and ask God to bless it. He asked God, God, what, what are you doing? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to be? Where do you want me to serve? And he follows God. Look over in 2 Samuel. Look at chapter number 2, verse number 1. And it came to pass that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Anama and the Jezreelites, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. Now Hebron uh, was a very important place in, uh, in, in Jewish culture. It was where God had anointed David to be king. It was where God had given Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. So this was an important place in Jewish culture. It was important for the, the, the kings and the patriarchs of Israel. And so God was tying the Abrahamic covenant to bless all nations to David being king. But David didn't hear about Saul's death and say, I'm just going to go on to Hebron. I'm going to get up, I'm going to go there, I'm going to get my crown, I'm going to do what, you know, God promised me to be king, and so I'm going to go and do it anyway. He says, God, where do you want me to go? Wherever you want me to go, God, I'll go with you. I'll be with you wherever you are. See, success in ministry, success in life is joining in what God is doing in the world around you. Success is not a, attempting great things for God and then asking him to bless you. It is discerning where God is at work and joining him in what he is already doing. You know, too many of us, we go through life backwards. We think, you know, God's placed me here to figure things out, to fix things. This world is a mess. This world is broken. My family's broken. My, my job place is broken. All this stuff's a mess, and so God has placed me here to fix everything. But in every story in the Bible... God is the primary figure. God is the one who brings salvation. God is the one who blesses the earth. Now, he does it through people, but God's the one doing the work. It's our job to figure out where God is working and join him there. A person after God's own heart seeks to join God where he's already working. Now, the question is figuring out where God is at work. Where, God, where is God moving in your life that he wants you to join him at? Uh, and it's, sometimes it, it's hard to do, but there are ways to do it. Sometimes it's through a divine opportunity that comes through what the Spirit invites you to. I think of Paul. You know, Paul got a vision of a Macedonian man saying, hey, come and help us. And so he discerned, he figured out, hey, God is telling me what he wants me to do. God is calling me to go to Macedonia where God is already working to help God there. And so that's exactly what he did. But we see Paul messed up on this too. Paul thought, you know what, I bet God wants me to go to Jerusalem. And God came to him and said, no, so Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul said, no, God wants to do a work in Jerusalem. I'm going to go there and ask God to bless me. And you know what happened? He went to Jerusalem and ended up being arrested. Spent the rest of his life in prison, was martyred because he ignored what God was wanting him to do. Now look, God will probably not give you an actual vision. You're probably not going to have, you, now look, you may, you may have a, a dream, 
where it got you, but that may just be, you know, you ate too many uh, pepperoni before you went to bed. So don't just take every dream. Because, look, I have some weird dreams, uh, and I don't think God's telling me. I had a dream the other day where uh, all of a sudden I went home and I entered the house, and my entire house was underwater. And, you know, everything else outside the house was fine, but I walk in and, you know, all of a sudden I'm breathing underwater, the dogs are underwater, and nobody's dead, but, you know, just we're swimming to the house. I don't think God's telling me, hey, why don't you fill your house up with water and see how that goes. That's not God telling So don't take every, oh, well, God gave me a dream that I should fly like a dragon. No, don't do that. So God's probably not going to give you a vision like he gave Paul, but he may lay on your heart an opportunity for you to help somewhere. And maybe a, a position or something that God's gifted you to do. And God's given you a gift to, to, to help people, to bless people. Maybe a gift of, 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 of organization. And God's gifted you. And he gives you a position. He gives you something on your heart that the Spirit is saying, Hey, come and join me in what I'm doing. Maybe you have a conversation with someone and you sense God is working on their heart. That's God saying, Hey, I, I put you in their life so that you could witness to them. You could share the truth of the gospel. He puts you in a place to reach them. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well in John 4. He sensed that the Father had given her dissatisfaction in her life, and he points her to where she can find living water. We also see this in David's first battle as king. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 5 real quick. Look at verse number 22. 2 Samuel 5, verse 22, the Bible says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Repaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them and come up uh, upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, then shalt thou bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba, even uh, until thou comest unto Gazar. So this is a great picture of David finding out where God was working and joining him. David goes into battle with the Philistines, and God says, hey, don't just go face them. Sneak around behind them and hide behind these mulberry trees, but wait until you hear the Spirit of God moving. And when you hear the Spirit of God moving, when you know God has gone before you, then join me in battle. Then join me where I am working. We need to pray for God to open up our hearts so that we can hear the sound of his marching. We can discern where he's moving in our life, in our community, in our world, in our neighborhoods, and we can join him where he's working. See, it's not my responsibility to figure out what is wrong with the world and try to fix everything and then ask God to help. It's my job to join God where he is working. At the end of the day, your greatest strategy for success is submission to the Father. See, I'm not responsible for growing this church numerically and spiritually, God does that. He invites me to join him in what he is already doing in our community. Instead of coming up with great ideas to get God to move, I need to listen to where he's already moving and join him there. David had a posture of submission. The second thing that made David a man after God's own heart, he had an instinct for mercy. After David hears about Jonathan and Saul's death, 
he writes a, a eulogy for them. And I want you to read that with me. So flip back over to chapter 1. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> and David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them to teach the children of Judah uh, the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places, how the mighty are fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised tra uh, triumph. Yea, ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there in the shield of the mighty is, uh, is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives and in their death. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How the mighty are fallen in the midst of the battle. O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of a woman. How the Mighty are fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This, uh, this, this eulogy is broken up into three stanzas, each starting with how the mighty have fallen. But what's most amazing about David's eulogy, David's mourning song over Saul and Jonathan, he doesn't say one bad thing about Saul. And he, he had plenty of things to say about Saul. Oh, Saul, I'm so, so sorry you're dead, but you did try to spear me to the wall five times. Saul, I'm so sure, I'm so sure I'm sorry for your, your horrible death, but you know what? You were pretty wicked, and you ignored God, and you chased me like a dog, and you treated me badly. You took my wife away and gave her to another man. He had plenty of bad things to say about Saul, but he didn't. Instead, he says Saul was beloved. Saul was lovely. He was swifter than eagles. He was stronger than a lion. Where's the vengeance? Where's the anger? He is loving his enemies. He is praising a man that hunted him like a dog. After all that Saul put him through, he's got nothing but praise for him. See, the next five chapters, we see what dominates his rise to power is an instinct for mercy. He mourns the death of his rivals. He throws a feast for, a feast for them to celebrate their life and what they did in Israel. He, he wants to reconcile with Saul's uh, surviving family, with those who followed Saul. You know, most of David's men, they want to track down everyone who, who sided with Saul, all his, his generals, all his soldiers, all his family, anyone that took Saul's side. They want to track them down and kill them. But David says, no, this is going to be a different kind of kingdom. We're not going to seek vengeance for ourselves. We're going to be a kingdom anchored in mercy. And that brings peace to Israel that lasts David's entire life. Great leaders throughout history are like this. They seek mercy over vengeance. Bishop, Bishop John Rakama was a pastor in Rwanda after the genocide uh, against the Tutsis by the Hutus. And he knew that the Tutsis had a desire for vengeance because he himself was a Tutsi leader. 
He knew that they wanted to hunt down those who had killed their, their women and their children, their wives, their mothers, their sons, their daughters, their fathers. They wanted to track them down and seek vengeance on them. But he led his people to forgive them. He said, holding unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and hoping to kill your enemy. He said the blessing of God doesn't come through vengeance. The blessing of God comes to the merciful. Abraham Lincoln, during his second inaugural address, said to achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves, we must dedicate ourselves to binding the nations wounded on both sides. I've always found that mercy bears richer fruits than strict justice. He knew that after the war was over and they were trying to bind the wounds, there was a lot on, on the northern side that wanted to, to punish the south for what they had done, to, to put strict restrictions on them and occupy them. And, but Abraham Lincoln said, no, that's, that's never going to bring a lasting peace. And, of course, he was killed before he could see it through. And, of course, those in the north did exactly that and caused hundreds of years of we're still dealing with it now because they didn't seek mercy they sought vengeance martin luther king jr said repaying hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe the strong person is the person who can cut the chain of hate somebody must have enough of god in them to cut hate off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love when you act in mercy Instead of vengeance, you commune with God. David was a man after God's own heart because he acted in mercy. See, God, Jesus said, God shows himself merciful to the merciful. He gives mercy to those who show mercy. And that's what David did. Third thing that made him a man after God's own heart was he had a devotion through, for God's glory. Throughout his eulogy, David grieves what Saul's death meant for God's reputation. Look at verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. See, Saul's death was personally good for David. But David doesn't say a word about it. Paul Tripp says you can know uh, all you need to know about a man's heart by what he celebrates, uh, what he celebrates when he mourns. David mourned Saul's death, and he was mourning because he knew it meant that God's glory, God's reputation was going to be hurt in the world. Doesn't mention that he's not going to be king. His own glory is not as important to him as God's glory. Now, I want to be focused on God's glory above everything else, especially my glory, especially what people think of me. You know, honestly, that's easier said than done, though. I get angry at God when things don't go the way I think they should, when God doesn't bless me the way I think he should. I get jealous when I see other people being blessed by God, and, and I know who they are. I know what their life is. I think I do. I think I know what their life is like, and I think they don't deserve it any more than I do. How come God's blessing them, and I know what they're like? I know how they live. I know what they're doing, and God's blessing them, and here I am trying to serve God, trying to worship God, trying to lead people to God, and I, I, I'm not being blessed like that, and I get angry. I get jealous 
when I see others being blessed in ways I think I should be blessed. The chief purpose of man is to glorify God, not ourselves. That's my role. My role is to glorify God. Your role as a child of God is to glorify God. David had a posture of submission. He had an instinct for mercy and a devotion to God's glory. Those, that's what helped make him a man after God's own heart. But in these chapters, we begin to see some cracks in David's armor. These five chapters have an ominous tone, and we see some disturbing things about David. It leads us to a second point. Number two, why we see that David is not the king that we need. There are, there are two things we see in these chapters that show us, yeah, David's a good man. He is Israel's greatest king. Every king after him is going to be compared to him. He was a man after God's own heart. Man, he did a lot right, but he's, he's not the king we're looking for. He points us to our need for a greater king. First thing we notice is a compromise of character. In chapter 3, we get a list of David's wives up to this point. So look over in 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse number 2. And unto David, now look, I've read this a lot. I've studied this, looked at the Hebrew. Some of these wives' names are kind of hard to pronounce, and I'm going to mess them up, but you would too. So give me a break, all right? Verse number 2. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon, of that lady, the Jezreelitess, and the second was Chelub of Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmelite, the third Absalom, the son of Micaiah, the daughter of that guy, the king of Gersher, and the fourth was uh, the son, that guy, uh, of that wife, and the fifth was that person of Abatal, uh, and the sixth, this dude, uh, by this lady, David's wife, these were born to David and Hebron. So what we're seeing here is by this point, David has six wives. In Deuteronomy, now look, polygamy was very common at this time and in this culture, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And look, we can get into debate whether well, polygamy was condemned by God or condoned by God or whatever. Uh, right now, in our country, polygamy is a sin because it's illegal. If you don't like that, I don't care. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get into whether you can or can't. But in this culture, it was common. But God had commanded the leaders of Israel, especially the kings, not to partake in it. He does it in the New Testament too, and he says deacons and bishops must be a man of a husband of one wife. It's kind of given the idea that your heart needs to be completely given to God. And you cannot do that if your heart's given to all these different women. So find one woman that God has for you, love her, cherish her, and honor God. Do not, God said to the kings, do not take you multiple wives. This is exactly what God said David should not do, but he's doing it anyway. Kings use this, this practice of polygamy to further their power. David is going along with the culture Morning is going along with God's word. This, we see this in the, his incident with, with Michael. Michael, of course, was David's uh, first wife. She was Saul's daughter. He married her before Saul tried to kill him. And all, all indications, according to Scripture, are that David loved Michael. And Michael loved David. She was a good wife. She risked her life to save David. 
She cherished him and loved him and honored him. But then David is exiled uh, through Saul and Saul to hurt David, to spite David. He gives Michael to another man to, to be his wife. So, you know, she, she's still David's wife, but uh, David is, Saul is cast away, and so Saul takes uh, Abigail, uh, Michael and gives her to another man. And David is, before even then, he's, he's not really satisfied with Abigail, so, with Michael, so he marries Abigail, Nabal's wife. He, he falls in love with her and marries her. After his exile, again, Saul takes Michael and marries her off to another man. And David, while he's in exile, he marries five other women. Now Saul is dead. Now David has become king and he wants Michael back. Not because he loves her, not because he misses her, but because he thinks if I marry her, it'll kind of, you know, it'll you know, justify and solidify my, my acclaim to the throne. It'll give me political power. So look over in chapter 3, look over verse number 14. And David sent messengers to Ishbaheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michael. Which I espoused to me for an which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines, and Ishbaloth sent and took her from her husband, even from Pathial the son of Laish, and her husband went with her along weeping behind her to Byrim, and then said Abner unto him, Go return, and he returned. Now, first of all, that's a weird dowry to pay for a wife. You know, during this time, you would pay a dowry, and it was usually like, I'm going to give you 100 sheep. Or, you know, depending on how rich you were and how, you know, how much you loved her, you would, you know, I'm going to give you 100 sheep, 1,000 sheep. I remember when me and, uh, me and uh, April first got married, uh, the pa our pastor, I asked him, I said, well, how much, uh, you, know, do, you know, how much do you charge for, you know, a wedding? And he says, I just always tell everybody, give me what you think she's worth. And so I slipped him a, a $5 bill. No, I didn't. Uh, I was like, that's dangerous. Don't be, you know. But so you would give what you think he's worth. And so David gave a hundred foreskins of Philistines to marry uh, Michael. Very weird dowry that he, that, he, that he paid. But the second thing we notice is her second husband, he loved her. They had a good marriage. When, when David takes Michael back from this man. He doesn't just say, okay, well, whatever. No, he is following behind her, weeping. He is heartbroken that he's losing his wife. David breaks up a happy marriage, doesn't care what it does to Michael, doesn't care what it does to her husband. He uses her as a pawn for his own personal gain. It's not the first time or the last time that he's going to take a wife out of convenience. He does it with Bathsheba. We'll see this in a couple weeks, the Bathsheba incident, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not just, you know, this, a lot of people, you know, you talk to about people who, who sin or leaders who sin and people say, oh man, they, they fell into sin. I hate that phrase. Like I'm just walking along righteously serving God and oops, I tripped and fell. I had no idea it was coming. I just fell into sin. I was doing right and, you know, tripped over this log and just fell straight into adultery. No, you didn't. There were things that set you up to do that. And same thing with David. He didn't just fall into sin with Bathsheba. He had issues in his heart that led to that incident. It was a dark pattern in David's life. Despite being a man after God's own heart, he had besetting sin. Here's the thing. Every one of us here has a besetting sin in our heart. We have besetting sin in our life. Whatever it is. 
the seeds of what are going to destroy your walk with God are already in your life. You know, if Satan's going to take you down, what's he going to use to do it? Sexual temptation? Pornography? Finances? Maybe he's going to use your temper or bitterness or unforgiveness or a judgmental spirit. Whatever it is, the seeds of compromise are inside you before they harvest in destruction. So we have to identify them and deal with them. Otherwise, you'll have a Bathsheba incident in your life as well. John Owen, always the Puritan preacher, said, you must be willing to kill sin or it will be killing you. David had a compromise of character. Second thing we notice about David, the cracks in his armor, is he had an inability to address Israel's biggest problems. Again, take some time and read these five chapters this week. They have some of the craziest stories in Scripture. Some of the craziest stories you're ever going to read. They, read, they are worse than, than like the, the Game of Thrones storyline. Look, I am not saying watch that show, don't watch it. I, I watched the first episode of that show on an app called uh, Angel, VidAngel where it supposedly censored out all the, the pornography and all the, the, the bad words and the violence, and I tried to watch it, and it filtered everything out. But I think the episode was originally like an hour and a half long, and I got like 15 minutes of it. it and I thought, man, if it's going to cut out that, if there's that much bad stuff in there, don't be watching that show. But it's I've supposedly got a terrible storyline, all kinds of, of crazy things happening. Same things happen here. It is, it is some crazy stories that happen in these verses. Now, uh, first thing that happens in chapter 2, Ishbahesh, the, the guy we just read about, he is one of Saul's surviving sons, and he decides he's going to anoint himself as king. So now Israel has two kings. They have David in the south and Ishbaheth in the north. And Ishbaheth's general, his main general, is Abner. Abner was the captain of Saul's army. David's captain, David's main general, is Joab. And so in chapter 2, Abner and Joab, uh, they, they meet together to kind of fight and decide who's going to be the king. Whoever wins, it's going to be David or it's going to be Ishbaheth. And so they, they get together in this battle and they choose uh, to do representative warfare. They choose 12 men from each side. Say so these 12 men are going to fight and whichever side wins, that side will be the king. And uh, to choose the outcome, look over in chapter 2. Look at verse number 16. And they caught every one his fellow by the head and thrust his sword into his fellow's side, so they fell down together. Wherefore the place was called Hekahatharam, which is in Gibeon. And there was a very sore battle that day, and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel uh, before the servants of David. So this is a strange battle. These 12 guys face off against each other. When they get close to each other, they grab each other by the beard and stab each other in the belly. So it's a, it's a weird battle, not much to it. They just grab and stab. Uh, and a couple of David's guys survive. So David, his army, is the winner. Uh, and so Abner and his army, they flee. And Eshahel, who is Joab's brother, he pursues after Abner. And Abner's trying to fight him off. Abner's trying to outrun him. But the Bible says that this guy was swift as a deer and he can't outrun him. So Abner turns and kills this guy. Joab's brother. Now Joab again, Joab is David's general. 
So he has killed David's general's brother. So Abner, he goes back to Ishbaheth, and he uh, just kind of, you know, he figures, well, David's, David's a king now, but he still goes back to the south and lives with him. But when he gets there, uh, he begins to sleep with one of Saul's concubines. Now, Ishbaheth doesn't like this because not only is he sleeping with his stepmom, he thinks Abner's making a play for the throne. So him and Abner have a huge fight. Abner defects to David. He goes to David and tells David, hey, I'll, be, I'll serve you. I'll do whatever I can to help give you the throne. And while him and David are kind of hashing out uh, the, 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 the plans or the, the, the details of his defection, Joab shows up. Remember, this guy killed Joab's brother. So Joab goes to Abner and says, hey, Abner, you know what? Let's, let's figure some things. Why don't you come meet me in this, this kind of dark hallway, and we'll, we'll hash out these details. And Abner is stupid, and so he goes with Joab. And what does Joab do? Joab kills him because he killed his brother, so Joab kills him. And so, man, this is whole, just this crazy thing is going on. And meanwhile, uh, in the north, things aren't going too good for Eshbaheth. His lieutenants are very upset with him. They don't trust him. They don't like him. So what do they do? They murder him. They cut off his head. They take his head to David. Because again, they think, hey, we're going to bring you know, his rival. We'll bring his head to him. And we'll show David what we did for him. That because of us, David's got the kingdom. David, uh, they should know, David doesn't appreciate this kind of stuff. And he reacts the same way he did in chapter 1. says, why are you taking matters of God in your own hand? And so what does he do? He kills them. Uh, so a very bloody very tumultuous time, and these first five chapters cover seven and a half years of things. Seven and a half years later, David is finally king over one united Israel. But the kingdom he becomes king over is deeply divided. He oversees a mess. The kingdom is bathed in blood, revenge, and chaos, and David tries to bring peace to it. And he does a good job, but eventually things start to unravel. Because here's the thing. Israel's biggest problem isn't they don't have a good leader. Their biggest problem is they have rejected God as their true king. They have rejected God for what he was supposed to do. So they needed more than just a righteous leader. See, here's the thing. Government is not the answer to our problems. I know we've got an election coming up in a few years, and man, I'm predicting right now it is going to be a mess. There's going to be mudsling on each side. People are going to be calling all kinds of stuff and saying all kinds of stuff, and just it's, it's going to be crazy. And whoever you vote for, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever, whoever, whatever you vote for, your candidate is not the answer. Not going to help, not going to do anything. See, we need, and we've seen this throughout history, 150 years ago, Karl Marx promised that communism would usher in a utopia of prosperity and peace to all people, but it still has not done it. Our founding documents in America, our founding documents promised that freedom and prosperity would produce good men. 
245 years later, we're still, we're still dealing with injustice, racial divides, and evil in our country. There is no perfect government because there are no perfect men to lead them. We need a different king. We need a different savior, one that can heal us in the places that our government can't. You know, it could call, that could cause us despair to say, man, no matter what happens, no matter who's, no matter who's in charge, that's not going to be the answer that we need. But it actually brings us hope because the Bible tells us one day God will give us a king. He'll come from the tribe of David. And he will rise up to power like David did. He'll be rejected and forgotten and persecuted like David. But unlike David, he'll have no compromise of character. He will lead a perfect, sinless life. He will not abuse his power for himself, but he will lay down his life for his enemies. He will absorb the wrath of sin for us. He will live a sinless life. He will die on the cross a death we should have died. He will take the punishment for God for sin that we should have taken. He'll be buried and rise again three days later to reconcile us to God the Father. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, he will heal us. He will free us from death and sin and the grave, that we will have a king that one day gives us what we truly need, redemption and restoration to the Father. David isn't the king we need. Jesus is. See, David was God's anointed king. He comes to the throne through a messy story. The same can be said of Jesus. His story is filled with bloodshed and injustice too. You read the story of Jesus as a baby. Herod kills every two-year-old boy in the area to try to get rid of Jesus, to try to keep his throne. Rome is an oppressive regime, regime that brutally keeps the Jewish people down. Through all the chaos, God brings his king to the throne. Same can be true for us. You know, your life is probably a mess. Now, hopefully your life isn't as messy as David's. Hopefully you're not, you know, people coming to you and saying, hey, so-and-so died and you're cutting off their heads because they made you mad. Hopefully that's not what's happening in your life. But your life is still a mess. Just as God was sovereignly working through David's mess to bring him to the throne, through the mess of the world to bring Jesus to the throne, he's working in your mess as well. He's working to bring his kingdom out of your mess. Now, it may hurt, but God is still working. We can trust him. We can trust his process and trust that he is bringing beauty out of chaos, that he is working to bring his glory through our pain. We can be a man like David and have a heart like God. But here's the thing, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how good we think someone else is, we need to always remember the person we're to be looking for, the person we're to be walk, working for and serving is not a good king or a good man. The person we're looking for is Jesus. He is the one that we need to look for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.